Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If you heard episode 51, you know that the Story Night Ministry is now offering a special service for those who want to capture a story before life on this earth comes to an end. So if you or someone you love is in that final season of life, all you have to do is contact me and I will get the story recorded and send it to you for the private use of your family. Actually, earlier this year, I had the honor of recording one of those stories for a 99-year-old lady named Shirley. In fact, we recorded her story just one week before she turned 100, and she has graciously allowed the podcast to air that recording so that you can get kind of a sense of how valuable it is to have these stories preserved for the generations to come. Before we play her story, though, I want to introduce you to her daughter, Loretta. Actually, many of you will remember Loretta because she shared her story on episode 43. So, Loretta, thank you so much for joining us and for all your help in getting your mom's story recorded. And I was hoping you would tell our listeners why you chose to have the Story Night Ministry record your mom's story. Well, it was just a, a privilege to have her actually at, be able to start at the beginning and tell some of the great stories that I know and my siblings know, but many in the family don't know, especially grandkids and great-grandkids. So I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. Also, that it, was, it was so helpful to have it be all in one place, the scope kind of of her life, some of the highlights all in one place. We've had bits and snatches here and there, but this is really, really a succinct kind of gathering of information and, and love. That's amazing. And, I, you know, as you can imagine, somebody who's lived for 100 years, if you really recorded the entire life story, it would be hours and hours and hours and hours long. And, you know, I think sometimes people hesitate because they think, well, do I have to write it all out? I'm not really a public speaker. I don't know how to use Zoom. There's just all these blocks, maybe. So I wanted to know... Did we make the process easy and easy enough where, you know, I know you were actually on the call. We we don't have your voice on the recording, but you were there to kind of help navigate that. And how was the process for you and for her? Was it was it easy enough? Oh, it was it was charming. It was wonderful. It was like I was having tea with her and you and you're so easy to talk to. So it was great fun. It was great fun. Um, you know, I, I want to add one thing about why it was so important to do this. And as I listened to it, I was struck with the age we live in is one where how I feel is kind of the measure of all truth. And when, as I listened to my mom talking, I realized that how she felt about things going on was not really the main issue. The main issue was, am I being faithful? Am I loving? Am I serving? And just that difference in a cultural perspective was just so great to hear from start to finish. I heard her kind of her voice from another time telling me what was true. That is so, so true. And I think we kind of it's so easy to overlook the past and just how much yeah. value comes from hearing from from these people and their lives. I mean, certainly we didn't have her in, entire life in this recording, but just the parts that she did share, you could kind of picture yourself there. And it was it was wonderful. And yeah. I wanted to ask if there were any surprises. I mean, you you listened to the whole recording. You were actually on the call with us. But once it was all done and I you know sent it to you and to be I mean, just so everyone knows, we're not editing perfection. We're, we're not trying to make like the world's most polished, perfect public speaker and every little quote unquote mistake taken out. We're, it's real. We want the authentic, real story. So, you know, as you listened back to the recording, even though it was probably pretty much just what you heard when she shared it, did you have any surprises? I think one of the surprises was that I forgot what she said. And so to hear it all again, it was like hearing it for the first time. And I realized that for my family to be able to listen to that now is going to be just a surprising, wonderful, joyful thing. You yeah. said something that hit the nail on the head, I think. You said that you'd forgotten. And, and it really, I mean, it wasn't that it wasn't like years and years and years later. You know, this was 
months later that you got to listen to it. But how easily all of us do that. We think, oh, I don't I don't need to write down what's who's in this photo. I don't need to write down this memory. I don't I'll remember it. Right. And we don't. Right. We forget. And looking back, I can think of, you know, my grandparents lives and think oh, I rem- they used to tell these stories. And what was that again? It's just so easy to forget and to have it captured. You know, it's it's preserved for, yeah. forever. That's exactly right. You know, I think, too, that the thing that came through, and this maybe was one of the surprises, too, was as I listened to it, I thought, oh, my, there's a fruit. There's fruit in that life. And we saw it a week later after the recording at the birthday party, sure, in 100. And there were 89 people there. And and what came up was all the birthdays that she remembered, all the meals that she prepared in hospitality, all the troubles she listened to, all the, you know, all these things were as people gathered around her, they honored her for her faithfulness. We want to remember the fruit that came out of all these difficult times and things. I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for just not only sharing your own story, but being willing to connect us with your mom and, and kind of do this, the Story Night Legacy series. And and we're so grateful that we get to share this one. Like I said, when we record these legacy series stories, they're meant for the private use of the family. So please don't think that if you do this, that I'm going to automatically publish it out on this public podcast. But... In this case, we were, she was so gracious that she's given us permission just so that our listeners can really get a feel for what a treasure it is. Thank you again, Loretta, for your support of Story Night and for allowing us to share this precious story with our listeners. Ladies, we are going to play Shirley's story for you, and I encourage you to just imagine that you are one of her ancestors listening and that you could just hear how special it is to have this treasure, not just the content of the story, but the way she shares it and just her, her, her mannerisms that all make her, her and her personality. So here now is the recording that we created for Shirley and her family. I am Shirley Balto Mock, and I will be a hundred years old in a week. Happy uh, almost birthday. Monday. My birthday is May 24th. So I've been waiting for that day for quite a while. <laughs> you are amazing. I am so excited for your birthday. And as part of your, you know, early birthday gift, I get to record your story. And I couldn't be more excited. Oh my goodness. So we have almost a hundred years of a story to start with. <laughs> Oh, they've been wonderful years. (laughs) The Lord has given me a wonderful life. I could just probably sit at your feet and listen to every single year. (laughs) But I, you know, let's, let's start at the beginning. Can I just ask you maybe the first, you know, five to 10 years of your life, where were you born? What was, what was your family like? Um, Maybe, maybe a childhood Mm -hmm. memory. Just let's, let's start with those first, maybe five to 10 years. Okay. I grew up, I was born in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota on May 24th. And I had two older sisters. Ione was seven years older and Arletta was 10 years older. And they were just coming home from school, which was about a block away out in the country. This was a farmland in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And they saw a man drive up in a black car and carry a little black bag and he walked up to the door where my dad was waiting. And so they wondered who he was, but that was all right. They uh, got to dad and he said, you know, girls, down at the neighbors, Joe Holmes, he has a cat that had new kittens and he wants to show you those new kittens. And so they ran down. Uh, it was about a, country road about a block away, no blocks at that time. So they uh, ran down there and dad said, I'll call when I want you to come home. But they saw this man with a black bag walk into the house. And so dad didn't say anymore. He waited for about 
there was a uh, midwife who was there. And then he said, after about an hour, he called the girls and he called Joe Holmes and he said, send the girls home. I have something to show them. Okay. And so they ran home real fast and they were telling dad, oh, those kittens were so cute. You should have seen them. Oh, my. And dad said, well, if you go upstairs into mommy's bedroom, she has someone to, something to show you. And so they ran upstairs to tell mommy about the kittens. And they got there, and there was a baby lying in the bed with her. And so they just couldn't believe it. And so Arletta said to Ione, Arletta was 10, Ione was 7, Oh, that must be what that man had in his black bag. He brought that baby. <laughs> in those days, nobody talked about being pregnant. <laughs> and even though the the women of the church, my dad was a pastor of the Methodist Church in Brooklyn Center, and the women had given her a shower, but they didn't show the girls anything about the baby. They had no idea she was going to have a baby because they wore those big skirts, and and uh, that here the baby was. <laughs> And they knew that man brought her in the baby in the bag. That Well, instead of a stork, it's the baby in the black bag. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're so, so glad you arrived. <laughs> yes, so I, I let us enjoy That's what that man brought in that bag bag. <laughs> well, that certainly would be easier on a lot of moms, huh? Just the baby gets delivered in a bag. <laughs> Right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, can you tell us a little bit about maybe what your parents did and, and what life was like as a, okay. as a young child? My dad was a pastor of the Methodist Church, Episcopal Church, uh, out at Brooklyn Center. And it was a beautiful church. Oh, it was so pretty. I wish I could show you a picture. And Mother... And he had been at this church. This was in 1921 that I was born. So now 2021. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. But anyhow, this church was a very nice country church. Most of the farmers had to get up early in the morning and take their load of vegetables and things down to the, the city market. And so they didn't get up to go to church on Sunday, but there were a lot of women and a few men, too. It was very mixed. And so, uh, let me see. So I would go and sit on Mother's lap during the service, and, and uh, Dad would preach, and I can't remember anything he talked about because I spent that time in church. We had two big colored glass windows on either side of the church. One was of Jesus knocking at the church. And of course, that if anyone will uh, open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, the, the scripture says. And so the other one was of Jesus carrying a little lamb. And I love to study those pictures because it was the colored glass that went way up to the ceiling. They were huge. And so those were beautiful pictures. But I sat on mother's lap until I was about seven. And then one day I decided, oh, I'm getting too old to sit on mother's lap. So I'd better get off and sit beside her. So he did. She, uh, I did. And so that's the beginning of my church life. I enjoyed church, and I enjoyed the uh, older ladies. I don't know the, well, we had Sunday school. And so I went to that, and I learned some Bible verses. That was good. had good Sunday school teachers. I enjoyed them. We had a big lawn. Uh, that went down in front of the church. It was called the point. 
and the Brooklyn, the road divided at that point. And so the point was a, a big area that we, that Dad planted flowers, oh, all over on the edges of the yard. Let's see, what did we do? Well, on Sundays, very often, we would drive up to Monticello, Minnesota, where my dad's mother and father lived. And we would visit there with relatives and uh, family's cousins, and that was always fun. We'd pick violets along the highway. It wasn't the highway, it was a dirt road up to Monticello. And we had a car, and that would be fun. Uh, the whole family would go up there. And let's see, what else? Well, on Sundays, after Dad had preached two services, because he always had two churches, one at Osseo, Minnesota, which was about five miles away. And so he'd be tired, and Mother would have worked all week, so... They would take naps, and Arletta and I own seemed to take naps. And I hated Sunday afternoons because I couldn't go and play with anybody. I had to stay. I had to be, I guess I had to be holy. <laughs> so we had a big slide that Dad had bought from a school, and I'd go and sit on the slide and watch the cars go by. And I would uh, just kind of entertain myself while everybody else took a nap. And then we had Sunday night services, too. That was very important. So Dad would preach another little sermon, and that was good. And then during the week, well, we would do various things. My dad had the farmers, and with the help of a realty company, built a big gymnasium in the backyard because he loved to play basketball and he wanted the young people to not go into Minneapolis for their entertainment. He wanted them to stay in out in the country, but they didn't do that. It was the men who liked to play basketball. And so that was, the gymnasium was a great center of activity. Well, dad was very unusual. Every fall, he would have a fair, which was a small version of the state fair, because the farmers would come to the basement of the gymnasium and make beautiful arrangements of their produce, of the squash and the radishes and the potatoes and the, and the corn and, the, oh, everything that they raised. Oh, I must tell about them going to the market in the morning. Uh, but that was um, a lot of people would come from Minneapolis to attend our fairs because there were so many things that went on out there. So many races. Oh, my goodness. They would have races of ladies over 45 and ladies of 30 and 20 and, and then children's races, bicycles. No, uh, gunny sack races where they'd be, and then they would hold the legs of a, a friend, and then they, the friend had to walk on their hands until they got to the finish line. And my sister Arletta often won the the fast races for teenagers, and all oh, the exhibits that they had, and then they had for the prettiest baby. The lady with the prettiest red hair, the people who had been married the longest, the people who had come from the furthest, and, and uh, the fancy work. There would be blankets hanging all around the gymnasium. Uh, so Dad had gone down to all the, the stores in Robbinsdale and Osseo, which were nearby, and had them donate prizes. And some of the prizes were good, like a 100-pound sack of flour or else uh, a tire or work gloves or, oh, my, can I remember? But anyhow, Ione and another man had to go around and decide who got the prize. 
you know, you're, you're giving me some really creative ideas because story night really at its core is a live event. We do have the podcast, but it started as a live event and we always have some prizes for different things. Well, I have never thought to get a sack of flour or a tire as a prize for some of these. (laughs) Maybe we need to rethink our prizes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Whatever they would uh, donate, he would give as a prize. And so that was good. <laughs> I was uh, about 12 years old, I think. You know, I was kind of boy crazy all through school. I had a boyfriend <laughs> in every grade. <laughs> and so I have to tell you about, in about second grade, I liked Jimmy Holmes. And one day he was out in the field with his uncle uh, planting things for the farm. And he pulled up what he thought was a carrot. And so he uh, took a bite of it and ate it. And just a few seconds later, he went into convulsions because that was a hemlock weed that Romeo and Juliet died from. And so he, they rushed him to the hospital, but he died. That was very sad in the community. But life goes on. Then dad decided that he wanted to move. He wanted to go far away from Minneapolis. So he exchanged pulpits with another man in Geddes, South Dakota. Now, that was a little town of about 300, and we uh, moved there. We lived there three years, and that, those are three of the best years of my life, I think, because I was in high school by that time. I started high school when I was 12, I think, 13, maybe. I was there a freshman, sophomore, and junior year, and my junior year, there was a boy who came to get us because our music department far excelled where he was in a little town. And he played the cornet and went to the national contest on cornet playing uh, Carnival of Venice, which is uh, very hard to difficult piece. And Oliver Mock came to town. He was a senior. And... I uh, thought he, I, we didn't ever go together. I accompanied him. By this time, I was a pretty good player on the piano. And he played uh, a song, and I accompanied uh, FFA. Do you know what that is? That's Future Farmers of America. So I played for him. But then he was going to graduate because his folks didn't live there. His brother was a teacher in the high school. And our music department was so good. So he uh, was there just his senior year. And then on graduation night, I decided, oh, he's going to be famous someday. So I better get his autograph. So I ran home and got my grade school autograph book. And he wrote in it, it's been nice knowing you. And if you ever have an extra paper and pencil, drop me a line. Well. I knew he was leaving the next morning, and I'd never see him again. So I thought, oh, well, that's pretty good. So I waited about, oh, maybe four weeks, and then I did drop him a line. He was living in a, with his folks in another town, little town in South Dakota. And so I wrote him, and then he started, he wrote me back in about six weeks. And then we'd correspond occasionally, not very often. And that started a five-year correspondence. Uh, what do you call it? when you? Well, we, we never did know each other very well because he went to, um, then he went to Morningside College. And at that point, at my senior year, Dad decided he wanted to move to Minneapolis. He didn't like the little town anymore. So we moved to Minneapolis. There were 30 in my class in South Dakota. 
450 in South High in Minneapolis. And, oh, my goodness. But I lived through it, and it was good. But we corresponded for five years. And then during those five years, he came up to Minneapolis about three times to see his sister, who was taking nurses' training. And he'd come over to see me. And finally, one day, I, I thought, he's, he's too timid. He's a little farm boy. He doesn't know what to do. He's supposed to kiss me. So I said to him, he who hesitates is lost. <laughs> and I meant it. <laughs> and so he finally did kiss me slightly. <laughs> well, Thank goodness. Then he came. Uh, uh, he came up then in October, and then he was really quite a lover boy. And so uh, he came in October, I think. And in November, he parked the car over by uh, the river and reached in his pocket and got out, out a diamond. I don't think he ever asked me to marry him, but he. <laughs> Assumed that I wanted to. And so we got our diamond. Well, that meant that we'd get married. This is 1942. And I uh, had finals at the U. I, by this time, I was attending the University of Minnesota. And I had finals until Friday. And then Oliver was going to come up on Saturday and we were going to get married. So... By that time, relatives were arriving from Illinois. And that uh, night, Friday night, I was sleeping on the floor in the dining room because the beds were all filled with re relatives. And so we got to sleep. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, my sister called from Cocado, Minnesota. She had a new baby girl. And everybody got up to celebrate the birth of Suzanne. Finally got back to my bed on the floor. And the next morning, Dad and I owned said they were going to drive out to Cocado, Minnesota to see this new baby. And would I get the house ready for the wedding that afternoon? Because we were married at uh, on 13th Avenue in our duplex where we lived. But I had to go down to meet the train at 10.30 in the morning because Oliver was arriving for his wedding. So we stopped at the photographer's house on Park Avenue and got into our wedding clothes and had our picture taken, got out of our clothes again and got in the car and went home. And I knew that about 30 people were going to come to our wedding. So I arranged all the chairs in the living room and dining room and that we could find. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we were going to have a photographer come and uh, to make a recording of our wedding, which we have. Uh, that's good. My brother-in-law... Was his, He had had this baby during the night, but he brought David, his little son, who was seven years old, with him. And then the, he was the groomsman. The, another cousin from Illinois stood up. And then Ione and Oliver's sister, who had finished nursing training, were the bridesmaids. And my dad married us in the living room with the 30 guests sitting around and the man making a, a recording in the floor in the middle of the room. And so very nice uh, service and dad did it and Oliver sang and then we were done. Dad had arranged to have a wedding dinner at the Leamington Hotel. This was 1942, December 20th. And so the, the went down to the all 30, well, 35 of us, I guess, went down to the Leamington Hotel and had a $5 wedding dinner. That was a cost in those days. And so that was very fun. And uh, then we drove 
to the uh, train depot where Oliver and I were going to go down to Sioux City, Iowa, where he was teaching by this time. We got on the train, sat up in the seats and got to Sioux City, Iowa about 4.30 in the morning. Well, we went to the hotel and of course, I had been studying up until Friday and then arranging all this work on Saturday and then through the wedding and then the wedding dinner and then the ride down in the coach for Sioux City, Iowa. And that was quite something. But we got to the hotel pretty tired, just exhausted, I think is the word. And so we didn't do much loving that night because I did, just didn't feel like it. And so the next morning, we had to get up, have breakfast, and then at 10 o'clock, Oliver had a Monaghan post-band rehearsal. And so I went with him to that. And then we went to the hotel and had our noon meal. And by two o'clock, we had to be back at the college where the Sioux City Symphony Orchestra was rehearsing. And so that was our morning was one rehearsal, afternoon another rehearsal because Oliver was the outstanding trumpet player and cornet player. So, all right. So, well, by this time, it was time to meet the family because I had never met his parents yet. We, we didn't invite them to the wedding because I, I, they were poor farmers and I didn't, this wedding happened so fast that I didn't think they'd come. And so the first thing we did then after the rehearsals was to drive to Kaler, South Dakota, meet his wonderful mother, uh, stepmother and father Henry Mock and Mary Mock. And their wedding was kind of funny. I'll quickly tell that. His wife had died, Clara had died when, uh, and about a year later, somebody told him that he should go and see Mary Balzer because she had lost her husband. And so we drove over to this town and Somebody had told him that he thinks they thought that he should get married to Barry, and so he did. He knocked on her door, and she came to the door, and he said, people said we should get married. Will you marry me? <laughs> so they were married, and uh, he came home and told his children, his six children, he had, Oliver had three brothers and three sisters, he told his six children that he was going to get married. Oh, they just rose up in fury because it had only been a, a year since Clara had died. But he sat them all down and he said, I suppose you expect me to sit here with the dog all my life. Well, let me tell you, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to marry Mary and we're going to be married. And so they did get married, and she was a wonderful, wonderful woman. Oh, I loved her. She was the best cook, and she always boarded children, uh, teachers in her home. So anyhow, I always liked to go with them. Well, all right, then we went to see his, uh, sis his brother Curtis and his wife Selma and his brother Leonard and his wife, uh, Joyce, and his sister, Pearl, who married an attorney, and uh, they lived in Iowa, so we went to see them, and then we saw, then Luella was uh, a nurse by that time. So uh, we met the whole family. Lawrence was a teacher up in Gettysburg, and his wife. And then, let's see, we were together about seven days at that time. And then I had to return to the university because I still had six months to get my degree. 
So I got on the train once again up to Minneapolis and finished the year by June. And Oliver was, by that time, he was a chief, the only cornetist in a radio orchestra that had to play a concert every night at 1030 in Sioux City. So he couldn't come to my graduation. He couldn't come for my recital. Lately, I've been getting kind of mad at him for not (laughs) telling his other players in this little orchestra that he had to go to, because I don't know what people thought. None of them knew I was going to get married. I got married. I didn't change my name at the U because I involved too much rigmarole. So I'm sure they wondered why I was getting married. You had mentioned the year of your wedding. And, Uh you know, for those people who have studied history or lived during that time, I'm just imagining, okay, World War II. How how did any of this play into your personal life? I left part of that out. Why we got married at Christmas time. Now, that was because Oliver's draft number in the war was so low, he knew he would be drafted sometime. And so he wanted to get married. I think he thought maybe that would keep him from the army, but it didn't. And then my dad, by this time, was uh, connected with the Minnesota Good Government League. And he wanted to close all the saloons in St. Paul and Minneapolis. So he would go out after hours, dressed as a bum with another investigator, and they would buy liquor after hours and then take it, put a seal on it and take it down to the courthouse in the morning and swear out a warrant because they were after hours selling liquor. And so... His name was in the paper all the time. He was writing articles and articles about places that he would get closed. And then they'd put a sign out in front, closed for remodeling, and they'd be closed for a month. But they were getting very angry at all the successes that he was having closing uh, liquor places. So they wanted to get something on him. So one of his detectives remembered that uh, dad had said that he had paid the liquor and carried it out. And this uh, investigator, Winchester, said, Reverend Father, you're not wrong. I carried it out and I paid for it. Well, dad had slipped up there. And so because of that, dad was accused of perjury and sentenced to a year in the penitentiary over at Stillwater, Minnesota. And so that was one of the reasons why we wanted to get married during Christmas vacation, because we didn't want to get married in the prison (laughs) over Stillwater. So that and the fact that Oliver was going to be drafted. And so we did get married on December 20th, 1942. Dad went to prison, and then, he, but the governor, the governor pardoned him after six months, I think it was, so he came home. But that was good. Oliver got a job teaching at Northwestern University, now it is. And at that time, Billy Graham was the president, so we got to know him pretty well, and that was such a treat. And then he was at, at uh, Northwestern for 17 years. And then Carl Lundquist of Bethel asked him to come to Bethel uh, College University. And so after three years, he agreed to go there. So that was a wonderful time. Oh, my, such good people we were with. I did a lot of work at Bethel. Uh, helping with all the recitals I had to make brownies and bars and and serve the kids when they came there. 
Speaking of kids, I know you <laughs> mentioned on your, your honeymoon night, there wasn't much leaven, but I think that must have changed because you, you had some children, didn't you? <laughs> oh, we did. We had <laughs> six children. Oh my goodness. The first one was born four years after we were married. No, three years. And then they came popping out. <laughs> and we had three boys and three girls. Diana, Roberta, Loretta, Tim, John, and Dan. And uh, so three boys and three girls. And what a wonderful time we had. I, I loved playing with the kids. And we did everything together and as much as we could. And so... All through all of this, the Lord has been so good. Even now, when I'm almost 100, I can't believe how many loving thoughts I have of God and the Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And, uh, oh, he just answers so many prayers. And it, it's just wonderful to be a child of the Lord. And I always recite the 23rd Psalm before I go to bed. And that is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in beside the quiet meadows. And he, oh boy, I know it so well. And he leads me in, but beside the still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will here have no fear, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. And so that's what I pray before I go to sleep at night. And it's been a wonderful time. I'm now living with my son. And his wife, just having a wonderful time. And coming up is my 100th birthday. And I think 70, over 70 of my family are coming. And so we're going to have a wonderful time together over at a grandson's house. And I'm looking forward. I wonder if I'll remember the names of all those. I have 24 grandchildren and 33 Great grandchildren. So that's quite a crew. Now, is there anything else you want to know? <laughs> that is quite a crew. You know, as you are about to turn 100 years old, I wanted to ask what your thoughts are on heaven and eternity and what you, what you might be thinking about in terms of the future and anything maybe you're looking forward to. Oh, I can't imagine how wonderful that's going to be because God has prepared a place for us. When, when we die, I, this is my thought, that we go to paradise. Our souls go to paradise. We don't have our bodies yet. And our souls go to paradise. And that is, that's the Garden of Eden. And then when Jesus comes again to earth, then we're all going to be taken to the new heaven that God has prepared here on earth. Oh, that's going to be so good. It isn't, heaven isn't up there, it's down here. And so that is what we're going to enjoy and live forever with his care. And it's going to be so wonderful and beautiful and unbelievable. So, Shirley, if you had a chance right now to just talk to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and all future descendants, what, what would you like to say to them? Read the Bible. Think about God's care for you. Oh, I can't imagine. God was from the beginning. There was nothing before God. And then God came, and the creation that he did was just it. Tremendous. I, I often look to animals in Africa or people in different lands, and it's just so wonderful. And then I want my grandchildren and great-grandchildren and, and my children to love the Lord with all their heart and mind and strength.
that in the Bible, it's wonderful to be able to rely on the Lord being with everyone. You know, for anybody who's lived 100 years, it's safe to say that you have faced difficulty, you've faced struggles. What would you say to people who are in the midst of that, who are struggling with hard things? Well, Roberta, she had epilepsy and she had it hard. And she would go to school and have have a seizure, come home, change clothes, and go right back again and meet the kids. And she was, she loves people, I think, uh, because she realized that she just was so thankful that they accepted her as she was. And let's see, now, uh, who else did? Dan, he's had several problems. And they've all, with all these grandchildren, They've all had the uh, problems, and some are pretty serious, but I just, rather than worrying about them, I just say to the Lord, all right, Lord, God, they are your children, and you love them, and you just take over now. I'm not going to worry about them anymore. <laughs> They're going to just, uh, I just want you to be the leader of their lives. And now, as I understand it, you had some special prayers for when your kids were little. And I wanted to know if you remember any of those that you could share with us. Oh, all of them. I often say them. But there was one. Now, at last, the sun is going down behind the woods. And I'm very thankful for I know that I've been good. Sometimes I wondered about that. <laughs> Do you know how many children go to little bed at night sleeping there so warm and cozy till they wake with morning light? God in heaven, each name can tell, knows them all and knows them well. And then the one that mother taught me. So I pray, dear Jesus, ask you for thy care. Through all the hours of darkness, oh, hear my humble prayer. Forgive the sins so many which thou hast done this day. In thy blood, all precious, may they be washed away. Bless the kind friends around me. May I not grieve their love. And when I die, dear Jesus, take me to heaven above. (laughs) All right. And then, of course, the Lord's Prayer is so good. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I just love that your memories are so clear when it comes to prayer and moments of joy. And what an inspiration for people who are just kind of in the thick of the hardship that here you are with 10 decades of life (laughs) and remembering the joy and the conversations with God you know, that's, that's been the bulk of your story. So often, if you ask somebody to tell their story, they're thinking of all of the things that are just sort of here on earth and listening Mm -hmm. to you talk, it sounds like your story is just constantly pointing back to God and constantly Uh looking ahead to heaven. You, you, you sound even just excited. Yes. And Everybody has problems, but just turn them over to the Lord and wait for his answer. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes, and amen. Well, surely it has been 
such a joy. I know I, I could talk with you for hours and hours and hours and ask you every question of every decade that yeah. you lived through and just what it what it's like to have gone from the 20s all the way to now 2021 and oh, how much has yeah. Oh, it's been a wonderful life. I just can't believe it. Oh, I've been happy all my life. I think that's one of the secrets to be uh, positive and to not look down on the bad parts. <laughs> Just enjoy life fully. Well, you are a model of that. Absolutely. Thank you. May I? Thank you. <laughs> You know, if if you don't mind, I'd like to just close by praying for you. Okay. And since you've that done so many wonderful. wonderful prayers, I, I would like to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're so <laughs> grateful for the story you have written in Shirley's life. And the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And Lord, you know there, there will be more and just the family line, her legacy, God, I pray that that legacy would just trickle down like this endless source of water for her children and her children's children, that the joy that she has in you and the hope that she has in you are so evident and that that gets passed down. We always talk about, oh, certain genetic traits or who looks like who in the family um, for those that are blood relatives, God, but, but much more important is that spiritual legacy. And I just pray that that would flow over in abundance. We pray for a wonderful, joyful hundredth birthday for this very special daughter whom you love. Um, and I do, I ask for Amen. the sweetest transition when it is time for her to move and live with you. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. And thank you for this opportunity. <laughs> well, ladies, I hope you enjoyed hearing Shirley's story. And we're so grateful again that she was willing to allow this to go on the podcast we really could all use someone like her in our lives, I think. And I, I hope this just encouraged you to reach out to us so that we can record the stories of your loved ones, especially those who are, you know, in that final season of life. And it's just so worth it to capture their story and, and preserve it. Uh, remember, this is a free service. It's open to anyone, actually. So for this Story Night Legacy Series, male, female, really young, old, truly, if you're in that final season, whatever that looks like, and you want to get that story captured, please reach out to us. For more information um, and to schedule a recording, you can email me at jcampbell at calvarymac.com. And that'll also be in the episode notes. You can check that out for those details. Thank you again so much for listening. And we hope you join us next time for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.